Ezra chapter 3. We are now making our way through this wonderful Old Testament book. And if you were with us last Sunday, you know we looked at chapters 1 and then moved on into chapter 2. And uh, the title of the message was Coming Home. Well, the Jews are now returning from Babylonian captivity following seven decades of struggle in Babylon and Persia, and now they're going to start over. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is starting over, starting over. You know, everyone experiences times of disappointment and times of failure and times of hardship because life is seldom, if ever, a series of unbroken victories. Usually it's an ebb and flow of ups and downs and victories and defeats and, uh, excuse me, disappointments and failures and successes. So it just kind of ebbs and flows. Um, And sometimes you need to start over. No doubt the ancient man Job felt that way. When Job said in Job 17, he said, my days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. Maybe you have felt that way at times in your life. Back in the 1930s, there was a professional golfer named Buddy Mulligan. And uh, on the first tee, he hit a terrible tee shot. And without batting an eye, he put another ball on the tee, and he just took a second shot. And he told his buddies, he said, this is my correction shot. And from that time to this, we call that, if if you're a golfer, we call that what? Taking a mulligan. That's right, taking a mulligan. If you ever play with me, I take a mulligan on every hole, all right? But um, that's called taking a mulligan. It's starting over. Starting over, we, we messed up or we didn't follow through or we failed or we were disappointed, and it's time to turn the page, time to move on, time to take a mulligan, if you will, time to start over. Sometimes starting over can be exciting. Sometimes it can be frightening. Sometimes it can be both. But if you're here today and maybe you've experienced some kind of a great failure in your life or a great disappointment, God would say to you that starting over, whether fearful or exciting, is much better than remaining stuck in the same place over and over, doing the same things over and over. Well, the background of Ezra chapter 3 is that God had stirred the heart of King Cyrus to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. They were to leave the protection of the Persian Empire. They were to travel some 2,000 miles, roughly, a trip that would take them some four months to come home, as we looked at last Sunday, to the city of Jerusalem, and to start over, to begin to build their city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years earlier. Some of the folk were very anxious about the journey Some decided to stay there and never return. But for those who did return, they were excited about the prospects of starting over. If you were to go back and look at chapter 2, last Sunday morning I asked you to scan your eyes down the page and just look how the Scriptures name the families that returned from the Babylonian captivity. God had not forgotten any of them, knew them all by name, knew their family tree, their family lineage, what tribe they belonged to, and names them for us there in verse number two, or chapter number two. And if you count it up, it's roughly 50,000 people that returned to Jerusalem in that first wave. Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. It was separated by the translators. Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle for us three distinct waves of Jews going back 
to Jerusalem. In the first wave, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, he leads this effort. That's what we looked at last week in chapter 1, chapter 2. That's what we'll be looking at again today in chapter 3. And Zerubbabel's concentration is to lead the people to rebuild the temple. Following that wave was the prophet Ezra. And Ezra would lead the people and help teach the Word of God. And then in the third and final wave would be Nehemiah. And Nehemiah would come back to Jerusalem. He would lead the third wave of people, and they would rebuild the wall around the city. And if you want to take it a step farther, you know the book following the book of Nehemiah. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about those three returning waves of the exiles. The book of Esther is a book about the Jewish exiles who chose to remain in Persia, and they never left. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and, uh, and Esther all talk about this unique period of time just following the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. It's a very fascinating time in Jewish history. Nonetheless, uh, as these first waves of Hebrews began to move back into Babylon, they had before them a, a monumental task of starting over. Had they messed up? Yes. That's why they were taken out of the homeland to begin with. Had they disappointed God? Yes. Had they failed in a miserable way? Yes. And they desperately needed a mulligan. They desperately needed a do-over and a start over. So God is now, as he moved the heart of King Cyrus to let the Jewish captives go, is going to bring them back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, and the temple is going to be, eventually, is going to be rebuilt. So, from time to time, like the Hebrews, we all need a mulligan. We all need a way to start over. And today we are going to look at what I'm going to give you as three steps that will help us start over. Wherever this passage finds you today, it's three steps to help you start over. Number one, I want you to jot down, connect yourself with God's people. Connect yourself with God's people. Listen, sometimes if we fail, particularly we fail in our walk with the Lord, it's so easy to get out of church and get out of fellowship with God's people, and we, we isolate ourselves when we do that, and it makes matters worse. So first of all, I want you to jot down, connect yourself with God's people, and we're going to pick up the reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. The Bible says, and when the seventh month was come, <clears throat> and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people, notice this, they gathered themselves together as one man in Jerusalem. I want you to underline that phrase, they gathered themselves together. What did they do? They connected themselves together with the people of God. Were they in need of a do-over? Were they in need of a mulligan? Absolutely. But rather than giving up and throwing in the towel, they all joined together, they band together, and together they were going to work to bring the city back from the ashes left by the Babylonians. So look at that. They gathered themselves together. You see it again in verse number 9. Then stood Joshua with his sons and the, his brethren, uh, Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, look at this, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brothers and, their, uh, and the Levites. They worked together. So you may want to underline that in verse number 9. Go down to verse number 11. They sang together. I love, I love the picture there. 
What do we see? We see people who are connected one to another. They're working together. They are serving together. They are singing together. If you go down to verse number 11 again, in the last part, the Bible says that, they, they, that the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord. So they were working together. They were singing together. They were praising the Lord together. Everything they were doing as God's family, they were being connected to one another. There is strength in numbers. So when the Jews came back to the promised land, it was not every man for himself. What were they doing? They were working together. You know, the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that the genesis of the birthday of the New Testament church was that the people were united together in one accord. And the Holy Spirit came down, and the New Testament church was born when all of God's people were connected together. 1 Corinthians 3 says, we are laborers together. So how did the Jews become successful under Zerubbabel in rebuilding the temple? They worked together. They connected themselves together with other people of God. Have you ever heard someone say, for example, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, technically, that technically, I guess, that may be correct, but a true born-again child of God, unless they're providentially hindered, will have a desire to be in the Lord's house and connect with fellow believers on the Lord's day. Now, I know there are times sickness happens. I know there are times work gets in the way. I know there are times that we travel and those kind of things. And I'm not talking about the exception. I'm talking about the rule. And the rule is, if a Christian is truly a Christian, a man is, or a woman is truly a Christian, I believe God's going to put that desire in their heart to be connected with other Christian people. Listen to Psalm 50. Gather my saints together to me, those that have made a covenant with me. Now, there were times in Jewish history when the Jewish people were anything but connected. In fact, they were divided. Right after the death of Solomon, the uh, Jewish kingdom was split in half. There was the northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. And first of all, they were divided and then they were defeated. And that's always the way the devil works. The devil will work to divide a family, to divide a marriage. He will divide the husband and the wife. And if he can divide them, then he will defeat the marriage. He'll work to divide a church and its fellowship and its spirit of unity. And if he can do that, then he will ultimately defeat its purpose and its ministries, at least in that local assembly and that local body. That's the way the devil always works to try to get people disconnected from one another because he knows there's strength in numbers. There's fellowship in numbers. We encourage each other when you're together. And listen, there is no such thing as a biblical model of a person who is a Christian going it alone. Let me just, let me just show you. Listen to this. As these people did all of this together, what is the contrast of that? Listen. Let's worship together. What's the contrast? <clears throat> I'll worship alone. Let's sing together. What's the contrast? I'll sing alone. Let's praise God together. What's the contrast? I'll praise God alone. Let's give together. What's the contrast? I'll give alone because I want my money to go to my causes and my interests. Let's fellowship together. What's the contrast? I'll fellowship all by myself. 
You see how ridiculous that is? There's no such thing. There's no such thing. So as the Hebrews were moving back into Jerusalem, they worked together. They were connected with one another, and together they were connected with God. I just think it is a beautiful thing in God's house to see a husband and wife sitting on a pew with a Bible opened, and they're growing together. I think it's a wonderful thing to see young people, teenagers, children, sitting in God's house on Sunday morning, worshiping together with the family, whatever that family may look like, if a single parent or two parent or whatever that family may look like, they're sitting together and they're learning together and they're growing together. Everything that we do as a church body, as the body of Christ, we are doing it together, connected to one another and connected to God. None of us can go alone. We hold the church in high regard We hold the Word of God in high regard. We do that together. We hold the preaching, the public declaration of the Word of God. We hold that in high regard. And we do that together. Connected together and connected to God. We do it together. I heard uh, about a, uh, or actually read about a a young mother seated in the the worship service. And she was trying her best to keep her fidgety little six-year-old boy quiet and still during the worship service, and that's not always an easy assignment, is it? And um, she would look at him very harshly. She'd point her finger. She would, she would threaten him, and, and he was still just fidgeting. And finally, as she leaned over, she just whispered something into his ear very quietly, and he sat up like a soldier and never moved again. And after the service, the lady who was sitting behind her, a friend of hers, said, I saw what happened. And I saw you whisper something into his ear. What did you tell him that made him sit up so straight and be so quiet? She said, well, I told him if he didn't stop wiggling around and being noisy, that the preacher would lose his place and he'd have to start his sermon all over again. <laughs> so listen, if, if I see anybody dozing off this morning, I'm going to start my sermon all over again, okay? <clears throat> but I say, what a great place to see kids fidgeting. In church. What a great place to see kids wiggling in church. Doesn't bother me one bit. It just bothers me if kids are not here. All right? So you let them wiggle. And if they're noisy, don't you worry about that. Uh, I mean, you might need to take them out if that's what you need to do, but we want, we want our church filled with young people. Amen, church? We want our church filled with families, and we want our church filled with people who, who see the desire and have the desire to be connected with one another and to have their children connected with one another and to have their children connected to God. That's what these Jews did as they moved back to the promised land. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, even so the more as you see the day approaching. So as these Jews returned to the promised land, they worshiped together, they sang together, they worked together, they fellowshiped together, they connected together with one another, and together they were connected with God. So if you need a do-over, if you need a mulligan, the great place to start is to be connected with God's family. And just pour yourself into the fellowship with God's family. Secondly, not only connect yourself with God's family, but conform yourself to God's word. Conform yourself to God's word. I don't have to say that, but the text does. Look what the scripture says in verse 2. Then stood up Joshua, the son of uh, Josadak, and his brethren the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelaiathel, 
and his brethren, and they built an altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon. Now notice this. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. As they worked together, sang together, served together, fellowship together, they were being led and directed by what the law, the, God, the word of God, told them to do and how to do it. And they were to conform to what the Word of God has to say. What was their first order of business? Well, if you continue to read, the first order of business was to rebuild the altar of God because that was the very center of Jewish worship. They were to uh, offer a sacrifice on the altar, a burnt offering before the Lord, uh, but they couldn't do that in the last 70 years since Nebuchadnezzar tore the temple down and tore the altar down. So as they come back home, what's their first order of business? Verse 3 says they're going to rebuild this altar. And they're going to once again begin to offer sacrifices. Well, where do they get that information? They know what Moses had written in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that was the guide. God said when we come back to the homeland that we have to build this altar to begin the sacrificial services again. So we'll properly worship God and the presence of God will be among his people. So their first order of business was to rebuild the altar. You'll see in verse 3, they set the altar Upon his basis. For fear was upon them because of the people of the countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Why is that? Because that's how God in his word had, had prescribed that in the Old Testament law. Uh, go to verse 4. They also, in fact, you might just want to circle these words as I give them to you. They set the altar on the basis. Verse 4, they. You can circle the word they again. They kept the feast of the tabernacles. Listen, it was called Sukkot. And it was a time when the Jewish people came together for a festival where they celebrated how God had given them great provision during the Sinai desert when they were moving through the wilderness wandering. How God had supernaturally fed them manna from heaven when they were hungry and sent them water from the rock when they were thirsty. Every year, the Jewish people would celebrate that at the festival of Sukkot, or the festival of tabernacles. In fact, do you know in John chapter 7, it was during the festival of Sukkot, when they were celebrating how God had given them water from the rock to drink in the Sinai Peninsula, that Jesus stood up and he said, as a rock of ages, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he that believes on me, from out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So by the way, if you're under the sound of my voice, either in the auditorium or, or listening online or watching live stream today, if you've drunk from the fountain of the world and it's left you thirsty and dry, come to Jesus. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Conform your life to what God says. Live your life by how the Scripture teaches us to live our lives. And when you do that, you will find the greatest joy and peace and purpose in life that you could ever find if you'll let God's Word guide you and shape and mold your life. You see, when these Jews started over, they built the altar, they made the sacrifices, they kept the Feast of the Tabernacles, they were conforming to everything that God had written. Look in verse 5. And afterward... <clears throat> They offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moon and of the set feast of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. 
they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food and drink and oil to them in Zidon and to them in Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon uh, to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus the king of Persia. So what did this group of people do as they came back? They joined together, sang together, praised God together, and they conformed their lives to what God had outlined in the Scripture about how to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They pulled their resources, and with those resources, they hired masons to build the city. They pulled their resources, and they bought timber from up the cedars of Lebanon that would be brought down through the port city of Joppa that would be taken to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city. They picked up the boulders and they dragged them to the side. They cut down the bushes and they dug up the weeds and they cleared the broken timber and all the piles of debris. And little by little, day after day after day and week after week after week, listen, month after painstaking month, they began to make progress in bringing the city of God back out of the ashes. Do you know it had been roughly a thousand years since Moses wrote the law since God gave Moses the law. About a thousand years. And a lot had transpired in that thousand years. I mean, you think about it. During that thousand year period, there was the judges. There was the period of King David, King, um, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Then after Solomon's death, there was this period of the divided kingdoms. Then after that, there was the period of the Babylonian captivity. A thousand years. But what kept them on target when they came back to Jerusalem? It was what God had said in his word. Remember back up in verse 2, what Moses, the man of God, had written. It was God's word through Moses that gave them direction, that gave them guidance, that helped them understand the necessity of, of, uh, of community and of being together as one. And the necessity of conforming their own personal lives to what God's Word would teach them to do. As they were starting over, they wanted to get started out on the right foot. And they go back to the basics. And this is what God says. If you need to start over and if you need a mulligan, go back to the basics for what God said. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said there are two ways to build your life. You can either build your life on the shifting sands or you can build your life on a solid foundation, the rock. And he said when the storms of life come, and inevitably they will come, the rains will fall and the winds will blow and hard times will come. He said if you have built your life on the shifting sands, your life will fall apart because there's no foundation. But if you build your life on the rock, Build your life on the teachings of the Word of God and upon Christ Himself. Then let the winds come and let the rains come and let the floodwaters rise and your, and your life will never collapse. The only way your life, if you're built on the rock, will fall is if Christ falls and He's never going to fall. So he says, build your life on the Word of God. So what are those steps to starting over? Connect yourself with the people of God. Conform yourself to the Word of God. Let me give you the third one. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Commit yourself to the work of God. Connect yourself to the people of God. Conform yourself to the Word of God. And then commit yourself to the work of God. 
Now that the altar had been built, in verses 1 through 7, in verses 8 and following, they, re, they turned their attention now to rebuilding Solomon's temple. Look in verse number 8. In the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem. How long have they been working on this project now? Two years. In the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shelethiel, and Joshua, the son of uh, Zodadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, and appointed them Levites from 20 years old and upward. Now, what were they appointed to do? Look at this. To set forward the work of the house of God. In other words, they were committed to the work of God. And if you need to do over and a start over, what better place than to get with God's people, let the word of God get in you, and then become committed to be part of the work of God. Listen, they labored. They worked together. They sweated together. They pulled together. They pushed together with everything they had to start over because they were going to transform a pile of rubble and an ash heap into a place for the presence of God to reside. And they all just did it together because they were committed to the work of God. Tonight, we began Vacation Bible School, as you heard me mention during the announcements. And I want to thank you already. I want to thank you ahead of time for your commitment to make Vacation Bible School successful. When you walk into our, our Family Life Center today and in many of those Sunday school classrooms, many of them have already been decorated with beautiful decorations that people have been here all through the week and they have, they have worked on that. The others will kind of get that today before Bible school starts tonight. And I want to thank you and say publicly thank you for your work to make the ministry of VBS successful to reaching the families in our community. What a great outreach it is. And I'm just praying that families who may not have a church home, who may not be connected with any of God's people anywhere, that they'll come this week and they'll feel the love of Christ and that they'll be encouraged by Vacation Bible School. You know, God is blessing our church in an incredible fashion, and sometimes it's hard to stay ahead of all that God's doing and to move as quickly as we need to move to take care of some of the things that God is doing in our church family. But when you look at our church ministries, I mean, I mean, we have people who faithfully serve, and they just serve regularly in so many areas. Our education ministry, and they're teaching Sunday school. Our student ministries, and they're leading youth, youth and young students. Our children's ministries and the Awana program. Our music ministries. We have people who serve on committees. We have people who drive golf carts and shuttle people back and forth from their cars. We have men who work security, people who work security. And as many folk as we have who are serving in so many capacities and so many roles here in our church, there's always room for more. Amen? We can always use more folk to help in children's church, always use more people to help in the nursery, always use more people to say, Pastor Darrell, I want to be committed to the work of God, and I'll be willing to help. Listen, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. Isn't that a great quote? It is our duty and privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. He has done so much for us. He has died for us. The least we can do is live for him and work in his kingdom. So as these Jews came back to, to, to Jerusalem, uh, they didn't see an intact city. They didn't see an intact temple. What did they see? They saw rubble, debris, garbage, grown-up farms, broken-down walls, a building that had been destroyed. 
And they had to commit themselves to start over and to pray for God's blessings to help them to rebuild the city. Now, I want you to know they did eventually rebuild the temple, but it was not without a great deal of effort. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too far, but if you go to chapter 4 and you read chapter 4, what you find is great um, uh, opposition came to get them to stop what they were doing. Can you imagine that? God calls you out of 70 years of captivity. You come back with a great dream in your heart and you're connected with the people of God. You are guided by the Word of God. You're committed to the work of God. And then the devil brings his people to oppose what God wants to do. Let me just show you. Let me just give you a, a quick review or a quick a preview of this. Go to chapter 4 and look in verse number 4 at what happens. <clears throat> I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, notice chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah <clears throat> and troubled them in building. They hired counselors against them, look at this, to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. In other words, they hire as many of the devil's people that they can hire to go against God's people and try to thru uh, frustrate, frustrate and thwart the work of God. Do you know they even write a letter? They write an ugly letter to King Artaxerxes, making all kinds of wild accusations about uh, this temple and trying to thwart the building of God's temple. So anytime that you do anything for God, the devil is not going to make that easy on you, and he will try to make you quit. Did you know that? He will try to make you quit. And I will just say the easiest thing in the world to do is quit. I mean, you get committed to the work of God and someone says something that hurts your feelings and maybe they didn't even know that it hurt your feelings and they didn't intend it the way you took it. But you take it that way and your feelings get hurt and you're like, well, I'll just quit. It's easy to do, isn't it? Or you meet some kind of an opposition or your life season changes or whatever it is, but the devil will make it very convenient for you to quit because the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in high places. It's always a spiritual warfare. That's why you have to stay connected with the people of God. You have to be guided by the Word of God, and we have to be committed to the work of God. So they write this ugly letter to King Artaxerxes. In fact, the letter is recorded for us in the Bible. Did you know that? In verses 11 through verse 16 in chapter 4. We won't read that for the sake of time, but that's the letter that they wrote to Artaxerxes the king. The results of that letter are given to us in verse 23 and 24. Let me read it to you, verse 23. Now, when the copy of the king Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shemeshiah, the scribe and their companions, they went up to haste into Jerusalem unto the Jews. Look at this. And they made them to stop by force and power. Look at the next verse. Then ceased the work of the house of God at Jerusalem. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It stopped for some, listen church, 18 years. That's right. <clears throat> I mean, they were, they were connected to each other. They were conformed by the word of God. They were committed to the work of God. 
And when the devil rose, the work was stopped for 18 years. Now, sometimes it looks like the devil is winning. But, you know, I have found over the years, if you just give him time, that him and his people will punch themselves out. So you just let critics criticize. You let bellyachers bellyache. You let haters hate. You let powders pout. And you just keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus and stay committed to him and keep the main thing, the main thing. Amen, church? That's what we're called to do. Go back to Ezra 3 very quickly, and we're going to land this plane, okay? Ezra 3, and I love these next passages. Verse 9. Then stood Joshua with his sons and his brethren, uh, Kadami, and his sons and the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of uh, Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, They set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Aphos, with cymbals to, look at this now, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of King David of Israel. That is, they just organized a worship service. When the foundations of the temple were being laid, laid, they stop what they're doing, and they lead a time of public worship. Meaning, while we're working, we praise God. While You're dishing out that food to those kids in VBS. We're just praising God. While you're trying to teach that lesson and it's like herding cats tonight and the rest of the week, we're just praising God. While we're greeting families and welcoming them into our congregation, we're just praising God because we're committed to His work. We praise Him while we are doing the work. You know, the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Go back to verse 11 very quickly. You'll note, they sang together by chorus and praising and giving thanks to God. Why did they do that? Well, what does the text say? What does that say, church? Because he is good. Isn't that great? That even while we're working, even while there's so much rubble around us, these Jews, as they're laying the foundation to the house of God, they stop, they praise God, they give thanks to the Lord, Because he is good. His mercy endures forever. Then all the people shout with a great shout, and they praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was just like the words of Psalm 100 came to their lips, and they just offered that psalm, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All ye land, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know the Lord that he is God. It is he that has made us and not we are his, we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Right in the middle of their work, they stopped to praise God. Anybody can work when it's good and life is good and the bills are paid and the kids are behaving It's hard to praise the Lord sometimes when trouble comes. But Ephesians 5 says that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So as this thing is closing, notice what happens. Many of the priests in verse 12, the priests and the Levites, the chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid, their eyes wept. And with a loud voice, many shouted aloud for joy. What in the world is he saying? As they came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, 
There were most who came back of that 50,000 in that first wave had never even been to Jerusalem, never even saw the city before it was destroyed. They lived their entire lives in the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. But there were a few, there were a few who were older, who knew what life was like in Jerusalem, and they were captured maybe as young men or or adolescents or young adults. They were captured and carried off into Babylon, and now as they come back, they might be 80, 85, 90 years old, but they remember what Jerusalem used to look like before the Babylonians destroyed it. They remember what the temple used to look like. And now as they come back after these seven decades of despair in Persia and Babylon, And they commit themselves to the work of God and they conform themselves to the Word of God and they connect themselves with the people of God and they see that the temple foundation is laid. They are so moved, they begin to weep. You see the emotion there? Some say they wept because the temple that Zerubbabel would build would be nothing in comparison to what Solomon had built in its glory, and they were wanting that and longing for that. But either way, what you see is the older people, when they came back, they wept. The younger people who had never been there to begin with, when they came for the first time, all they had heard all of their lives is what Jerusalem used to be like and the temple used to look like. And now they're coming back with this great vision in their heart that we're going to build this temple for God and God's going to reside with his people. And the Bible says they're dancing in the streets and they're celebrating. Notice this, verse 13, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard far off. All of life is a mixture of joy and sadness. But God's grace is so amazing that if you live your life in those disappointments and those hard times and you've kind of walked away from Him, God says, it's time to start over. And in His grace, He is able to bring you from where you are, bring us from where we are to where He wants us to be. His grace truly is amazing. What does he say to us? If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We just follow those steps of connecting ourselves to the people of God, conforming ourselves to the Word of God, and then committing ourselves to the work of God.